we're good. All right. There's a lot of things hanging off me right now. I wanted to use that mic because it reminded me of Bob Barker and The Price is Right. But they told me to use this one instead, so we got to adjust to that. So uh, my name is Eric McLaughlin. We're here to talk about walking with those who need without losing heart. Um, and so we'll dive into it. Um, just enough biography so you know kind of who I am. I'm a family medicine doctor. I grew up here in the U.S. and... Um, I finished uh, residency in 2009 uh, with my wife, wife Rachel, who's here. She's an OBGYN. And together in a community of families, we moved to Kenya for two years. And while we were there, we kind of built a vision for a long-term place to invest in Burundi. And we moved from there to uh, language school in France in 2012. And then we've lived in Burundi uh, since 2013. Um, and we work at the medical school there. This is the place that we live, which is called Kibuyeho Hospital. It's in the Equatorial Highlands. It's a really beautiful place. It's an incredibly impoverished uh, place. Burundi currently has the distinction of being the poorest country in the world by every stat that I've seen in 2021, um, and we're able to be involved with the Christian medical school there, training and discipling medical students. So it's good, and sometimes it's hard, and we're thankful to be able to have continued doing it for the period of time that we have ominous going up and down there. What does that mean? So uh, who are you guys? Can you raise your hand if you are uh, completely done with all of your professional training and you're working as a professional of some kind? All right. And if you are in training at some stage or another, I realize like medicine means like you're in training and you're like 15 years later and you're still in training. Uh, so it's vague, but just kind of like where you're at. And how many, how many of you have been on the ground in like a developing world hospital providing care before in one capacity or another? Oh, that'll be interesting. Uh, okay, thanks. So, uh, the premise of uh, how common approach this talk today is is based on the idea that any attempt that we have as Christians to walk with those in need is going to take an inevitable toll on the heart of the caregiver. Right? Um, the other people that you're taking care of are in a lot more dire circumstances than you are, but it is actually very hard day in and day out to enter into the suffering of the people that are around you. And uh, it is something that that threatens the long-term viability of the, of the missionary uh, caregiver, for sure. Uh, but more than that, I think that when we're not addressing that, we're missing an opportunity for God to be working in us and to doing the work that he wants to be doing to make us more like Jesus through the things that we're going through. And so they are important to, to pay attention to. So this is generally true for everyone, and, and it's true for all of our lives in America uh, but medical omissions is kind of like an extreme example of the truth of this principle that it's really hard to, to enter into someone else's sufferings. Um, so as we talk about it, and this is my plug because I, I do a lot of teaching, you know, we think about how we go through these things, but we also think about those that we might be involved in mentoring uh, and helping them kind of work through these things as well. Hey, Doc. Yeah. We are streaming live for those that are not in a chair so we need, so does that mean everyone needs to be in a chair? We need, well, here's a, here's or what does that mean? Yeah, so there's probably, it looks to me like there's a dozen or so chairs. There's actually, some people could, those are not great seats currently, <laughs> but uh, they're not glued to the floor either, so you could potentially sort of scoot them back and... Um, 
We'll try and provide enough narration, even if you can't see the screen very well, to kind of provide for that. A couple seats up here. two seats here. Thanks for coming, by the way. <laughs> yeah, there's still about five or six chairs in here. So I don't know if it's possible to just, you know, everyone knows that awkward ushing moment. No, 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 just go up in front of everyone after this talk has started. It's fine. No one will mind. Except you. Um, it really is fine. All right. Are we good? All right. So this is what we're going to talk about. Um, I did publish a book about this called Promises in the Dark, Walking with Those in Need Without Losing Heart, and a lot of the material today is kind of culled from stories and reflections that are also shared in this format. And so you can find that on um, Amazon. As of, as of yesterday, middle of the day, the audiobook came out. <laughs> like, how timely was that? I, li- I literally didn't see that it had come out until I was, like, downstairs, and we were like, maybe it's out now. And we're like, ah, it is. So there you go. There's an audiobook, too. Um, to set the stage of this, so there was a big talk within healthcare professions, and, and, and it is way bigger in COVID, but it was way bigger before COVID as well uh, in regards to burnout. Uh, so where does this fit within that? And that kind of deserves the slide. Anyone know who this guy is? You should, somebody here should know who this guy is. This is John Patrick. He's not here this year. At least I didn't see him on the speaker panel, but he's spoken at with CMBA for years and years. And um, he said something several years ago at this conference that I, I remember him saying, which is that technical problems have technical solutions and moral problems have moral solutions. Uh, and I think this is really true, and I think burnout is both a technical and a moral problem, and yet when we talk about how to address it, we largely talk about technical solutions to something that has a lot of moral problem to it. And so what I want to do today is to look at the heart, to look at the even the theology um, of how we approach these things in order to hopefully make this a more complete discussion about this very significant and important, important topic. But all these other things that we're not talking about, setting healthy limits, Sabbath is incredibly important for me and my family, et cetera. They're all super important uh, and should be done, but they're not the focus of our, of our talk today. All right, so we come down to the big question. How do we find hope to carry on in our work and our lives in the midst of the suffering in this world? Everyone can ask that question. My reflection you know, to try to answer that question is to say that we need to remember the promises of God. And that's the approach I'm going to take today. But you can break down into we need to remember what the promises are, and we need to remember uh, that the one who promises is faithful. And what I want to do, I want to take three different themes, which are at the bottom there, insufficiency, never enough, and darkness. And I'm going to start each one of those themes with a story, or two maybe, uh, and then a little bit of reflection on it and try to end with something that resembles a, a promise or an encouragement, something that we can hold on to to encourage us in the midst of the challenge, which has been demonstrated by the story. All right. So uh, I moved to Tenwick Hospital in 2009 uh, as a Smyrna's first post-resident, and um, they put me on the pediatric service, and then after about three weeks or so, they put me on call for this first weekend. And I'm really excited, right, because I want to contribute. I want to make sure that all these hardworking doctors that are here all the time, that you know, now that I'm here, their lives are going to be a little easier, and we can do this, and I've been doing it whatever. And I got a plan. I'm going up to round on Saturday morning, and I'm pretty sure that if we do this right, me and the intern can can get everyone rounded on, and maybe I can be back by noon or one o'clock or something like that. And um, and that lasts for about five minutes. I, I I walk up to the hospital, and I walk into the NICU, and the nurse comes to find me. I don't even like ask the nurse. I'm trying to fly under the radar, 
And I go over and start working on my first chart, and the NICU nurse finds me, and she's like, Doctor, we have a baby who's really jaundiced. And I look at the baby, and they're on phototherapy, and they're terribly jaundiced. In fact, they have clinical symptoms of, of cernicterus, so brain involvement due to the jaundice. Um, and I'm like, I don't think we can do, I mean, this is bad, but like, I think we're doing what we can do. And she's like, well, I was wondering if you could do an exchange transfusion. And I was like, what? <laughs> me? Like here? Just me? Like I can do an exchange transfusion? Like we do that? And she was like, well, it's been done before. And I was like, oh my gosh. So anyway, uh, over the next four hours, I call seven of my colleagues, some, several of whom come, some of them are here at this conference actually, and then some of them come up to the hospital to try to help me on their weekend off. And while we're trying to figure out whether or not this is actually feasible, this other premature baby dies in the NICU. At one point, I remember that my intern is down in the ward seeing the bigger kids, and I need to go check on how he's doing. And I go down to see him, and he's like, oh, it's okay. You know, we were carrying and taking care of that, that baby with tuberculosis and HIV. And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, she just died, so we're talking to the family. So it's noon, and I have seen zero kids, and two of my kids have died. Um, and it's... It's a new life that I have taken on, and this is apparently what it's like. Um, I finish rounds at 8 p.m. By the time I finish rounds, another baby has died. In the middle of the night, they call me up and another one dies. And then the next day, another one. And during my 48 hours of call for the weekend, I had five children die under my care. Um, the problem is too big. I can't, I can't do this. I'm sitting there... And I'm just overwhelmed with the sense of, I am not, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do it. God, how could anyone do this? Why is this happening? What, what, do I, what do I do? What does anyone do in the face of something like this? Well, one might say, um, you can only do what you can do. And that's true. Six months later, I'm down uh, on the, the, the adult side taking care of, uh, adults, and I have a, a young lady in her 30s that comes in, and she's got a big heart and x-ray, and she has trouble breathing and swollen legs and things, and so I cook it. She's got heart failure. We start treating her for heart failure, and she's just not getting better. Like, we thought we got it. We started treatment, and it should be working, but day in and day out, she's just not getting better, and uh, after about 10 days, one of the legs just swells up a lot and gets all red and warm, and the other one is relatively small, and that just changes everything. Uh, because all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, your your breathing is not due to your heart failure. You you put a, you put a clot in your in your lungs. Um, so we start her on treatment, uh, and actually we ask her, like, have you ever had this before? And she's like, you know, I, I did. I had it like three years ago, but I didn't think to tell you. You didn't ask. I didn't ask. Um, and she gets up the next day and walks to the bathroom and dies. Uh, and if she had been treated better, then maybe it would have made the difference for her. Uh, so our insufficiency can also take the form of the fact that I'm, I'm not skilled enough. It's very personal. I'm not skilled enough. Uh, the problem generally is, is too big, but sometimes uh, it hones in on, on myself. This is, a, this is a critical theme for people that want to work in medical missions. What do you do with that? So what do we do with our insufficiency? Uh, well, generally speaking in the world, the first thing that we try to do is to be, we, we minimize it. We minimize it. We want to become more sufficient. So we need to get more training. We need to try harder. We need to be better. Those are good things. They will not, they will not do it. Uh, they will do part of it, and you should do them, but they're not going to get you there. Uh, the other thing that we do, I think, is we pretend uh, that we're sufficient. So we just, let's not talk about these things. <laughs> 
let's minimize them as much as we can, uh, to both to ourselves and to others. Uh, we don't want to talk about them. But the Bible, in all of its glorious nuance and wisdom, uh, provides something that is different than what the world has. And it is shot through in the Bible. It is a consistent theme throughout all the Bible, which is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And I hope that you know all of you kind of know the the, the direct citation that this is taken from. So this is a, this is God's response after Paul has a thorn in his flesh and he doesn't want it, and he pleads to God to take it away, and he says, "My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness." But it's not just there; it's everywhere in the Bible. Um, God's power being made perfect in weakness. Um, there's a really important distinction. I read this for years. And until I needed to hear it, probably in Kenya, I didn't really take seriously what this in part means. And I, I realized that I had been reading it for years as God's power will be made perfect despite your weakness. So your weakness isn't going to get in the way. He will, he will manage that. Um, his power will still go forward. Don't worry about it. And I don't think that's the purpose. And I think the rest of the Bible, if you want to take an example like Gideon, if you know the story of Gideon, the weakness is on purpose. It is really on purpose. Um, God will go out of his way to create weakness because the weakness is the thing that is going to bring God's strength. So it's not despite your weakness, it is in your weakness that God's strength is made perfect, in my weakness that God's strength is made perfect. And this is the promise. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. How does that work? Like, really, let's be honest. I'm talking about these stories of, of, of moms of three in Kenya at 35 years old dropping, drop, dropping down and dying. How is God's strength being made perfect in that? I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Nor, and it would be the height of folly for me to pretend that I know the answer to that question. But I have some reflections over time that, that give me enough hope that there are answers to that question to kind of keep going and trusting in it. When I don't know, I actually think not knowing is part of the, part of the answer. Part of the answer. Uh, because when we don't understand, we have to just stand there and do nothing. Um, we have to trust um, because we don't we don't know the answer to that question. But when we have to stop and we have to wait, when we have to trust, that is an antidote for our pride. Um, and my pride is a poison in everything that I do. Uh, excuse me now. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's the streaming of my talk. It's the streaming of this. Yeah. I don't have an answer to that. I'm assuming I can keep going. And the, 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 the talk is given again, so. It's back working. I'm sure that's going to last forever, right? We're not going to have this conversation again. Um, so. Yeah, so, so how does it know? There's a, there's a mystery in the promise, and we should take seriously the mystery in the promise. But some thoughts in addition to that. I do think that not knowing is part of the point. Uh, because when we don't know, we learn to trust. When we have to trust, we learn humility. Um, and most of us, myself especially, we really underestimate the degree to which pride is damaging things around us. And when God is working humility, we can imagine how he is working his strength in that. Here's a couple of quotes that I've kind of read recently that I think kind of illustrate these things pretty well. The first one's actually from a secular, this is a secular author. The humility that comes from recognizing that as humans we are all flawed and all suffer in our own ways can cultivate compassion and uncover the common bonds between us. All right? 
So that's a way in which weakness is, is producing strength, right, through compassion. Uh, Tim Keller's Easter book, which came out last year, which is really great. Uh, the Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things. Ooh. The road the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things. And if we can remember this, then we can face anything. And this is another example of strength coming out of weakness, not only for, for me, the caregiver, but part of our hope in a given situation for ourselves is tied to the hope of the people that are suffering around us, and this is hope for them as well. Uh, and then finally, a very provocative statement from Scott Cairns, who's a poet, uh, that says, Paradise is filled with men and women whose cancer has saved their lives. And I, I think that's true. Uh, I think that really is true. And uh, that means nothing whatsoever in terms of how we are or not going to approach cancer, but it does mean a lot in terms of hope. So we return to this promise in the face of our insufficiency, remembering that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and taking this taking this seriously. Uh, I've said before, and I'll say again, I, I think we, we need to either take this seriously or we need to go home. We are not going to bring something else to the table. Um, what happens when God's strength is made perfect in our weakness? It is that God is glorified and we are not. Um, everyone can see that the beauty and the goodness that comes out of it is not something that was done because there was some hero on the ground or something. It's because God did something great. And that that is strength. All right, let's move on to number two here. Uh, never enough. So uh, before I leave the hospital one day, uh, I go to the emergency department, and there's a, a 50-year-old man who has known heart disease, and he stopped taking all his medicines like a year ago or something, and now he's coming in. He's in terrible shape. In addition to having all these kind of classic symptoms of heart failure, his blood pressure is like 70 over 50. And so this is going to be really hard. Without critical care, anything that I'm going to give him to try to help his, his heart failure is going to probably make his hypertension or his hypotension worse. Um, and so he's, he's walking a real fine line, and his prognosis is very poor. So I talk with the family. I want to make sure they know that. I talk with the, you know, be right orders. I talk to the nurses, make sure everyone knows what's going on. Everyone knows what's going on. I go home. Um, a couple hours later, my intern calls me and says, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't look very good, and we talk through it. It sounds like he kind of looks about the same as he was before. Um, and so I kind of, you know, we talk about what we're doing, and we decide to kind of stay the course, and, and we do. And I don't hear anything else. And then the next morning, I walk into the hospital, and I find out that he passed away at about like 10 p.m. Right? So this is one case in a million. Uh, I've been in this situation many, many times. And I'm, I'm haunted by this vague sense that I should have done more, that I, I, I let things drop, and maybe I should have been working harder uh, in this situation one way or another. So I'm going to ask you guys a question, and this is a little bit of audience participation here. Should I have done more? Now, I'm not gonna, you're not going to say yes or no, because you would, like, feel bad, I think. So <laughs> let, let me, let's do this instead. Uh, why would one think... Someone. Why would someone? In fact, I'll tell you this actually. Well, no, okay, this was a real case. I thought about making up a case so you, then I could tell you it was made up and you wouldn't feel bad for like critiquing me. But it actually was a real case. But you still don't, don't feel bad. Um, so should I have done more? Yes, you should have done more. What are the arguments in favor of yes, you should have done more? Why should why should why should you do more in a case like that? Why should someone have done more? What is that? Yeah, maybe it would have changed things. Maybe it would have changed the situation. Is it likely? No, but maybe. I mean, 
That's worth that's worth doing. Okay. Other things. Yeah, it's my responsibility as a doctor to do everything I can for every patient that comes across my path. Your own peace of mind? Yeah, I could get through the other side, and at least I know at least I know that I did everything that I possibly could. Uh, we can we can flesh that out a little bit here. Some other stuff I thought. Oh, I would have done I would have done more if I was in the U.S. I would have stayed by his bedside all night long. Maybe it would have helped. We said Christ gives us strength. No one quoted Philippians for me, but you know. You could if you want. Uh, what about my family? You know, my family wants me home. I should be home with my wife and my kids. But you know, they also need examples of self-sacrifice. So is my intern. Like she's, she's calling me. She's seeing things. You know, maybe she needed this example of self-sacrifice. Okay. So why would the answer be no? What are the arguments to say? No, it was okay. You didn't do more. Well, the, obviously the man in advance had already made the decision to not take the medication. So in his way, he had already started the process. That's a very provocative statement. <laughs> um, okay. Other answers? Yeah, it probably wasn't going to change anything. Other comments? Did you have something else? Yeah. There's always going to be, there's always going to be another case like this. Yeah, if this happens once a year, then yeah, I can stay up all night. But if it's happening every night, you know, like, what am I going to do? Right? Okay. It's very difficult to revolve your entire life around Right. I, I have I have other things that God has called me to, and they have to be held in tension with the, the work that God has called me to in taking care of this patient. Okay. All right. So the things that are written here, it wouldn't have mattered. We talked about this. Your family needs you. We talked about that. There's always another case. Uh, interns can learn independence. Uh, if I hold their hand the whole time, they're not going to be ready to do what they're doing at the end. Um, and and this one is I think quite true. Like when you get to the certain case. In the States, I'd stay there all night because we got other things to do if it goes bad. But here, I, I don't. And so me staying up all night isn't going to have the same effect that it was somewhere else, right? All right, so are these just excuses? Or more, more to the point, do they feel like excuses? They kind of feel like excuses to me at that moment. It's really hard for me not to feel like these arguments I'm making. I actually think a lot of those things have a lot of merit. But, man, they feel like excuses inside me. So the idea is that we could be better clinicians. Maybe we have under-prioritized and mismanaged the steward of the gifts that we have. Uh, the Bible, actually, Jesus says nothing to assuage this, actually. <laughs> I think he really ratches it up and is saying things like, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. We could have done more. That's the overwhelming sentiment. <clears throat> All right, so I have no idea how this is going to work with the way this thing is blinking on and off. But let's try it like once, and if it just totally fails... And then we're going to leave this alone, and I'll just describe it to you. This is a clip from the movie Schindler's List from uh, the mid-'90s, where uh, Liam Neeson, who's Oscar Schindler, has, he's a, a wealthy businessman who has used his financial means in order to save the lives of uh, lots and lots of Jewish people. And now he's surrounded by that group of Jewish people. And the clip immediately before this, they've actually taken out their own gold fillings and melted them into a ring to give him as a token of gratitude for all that he's done. All right? So, <laughs> let's try this out. <clears throat> As Hebrew, the top of the 
Even Oscar Schindler's facial expressions, and think that's that's what it's like. Um, and uh, and any conversation, for example, with a supporting church back home about look at all that you did do is going to feel like Oscar Schindler feels when all the people around him are like saying no, 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 and it, it's he's impermeable to it. Um, so why why is that? Um, there's a really great sermon from Tim Keller where he basically makes the argument that. The, the problem is that Oscar Schindler is actually right. Uh, he could have gotten more. And that's why none of, people's, none of the people's protestations around him have any effect whatsoever. It doesn't matter how often they say, no, 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 don't worry about it, because he knows he could have gotten more. He could have sold his car, and he could have gotten 10 more Jews. He could have sold his lapel pin and gotten another Jew, and he didn't. So what do you do with that? And the best answer that I found comes from 1 John 3. So at the end of 1 John 3, and, and, and these verses here are like a very strong admonition to practical love and action in the Bible. This is if you see your brother with nothing and you say, be blessed and go on your way. Okay, that's this. And then after that, there's this phrase here, very significant. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. And if you're like me, you hear those words and it's like a balm. And then you're like, oh, that's really comforting, but what does that mean, really? Like, I don't really understand that. And it is, it is hard to understand exactly what's meant by that. And there, there appears to be sort of like a lack of concordance among scholars. But First John 3 is also, the starting point of First John 3, you may also know, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Exclamation point, exclamation point. And here's the point. Uh, I think 1 John 3 goes from God's great love lavished on us to the admonition for practical love for, for, for a reason in action. Because you can't go the other way. You go the other way and you're Oscar Schindler. But if we start with God's lavished, free love given to us, uh, then we can find hope. Because what is it that haunts us? 
I think the biggest thing as Christians that haunt us is that there's some sense in which we're trying to gain God's approval. Have I done enough? Who are we addressing that question to? Ultimately, I think we're trying to address that question to God. God, have we done enough? Is it, is it enough yet? And God says, that's not where we start our conversation. We start our conversation with the fact that you are my child. Uh, it has nothing to do with what you've done. You are my child. Um, I have lavished my love upon you. That is who you are. And now let's talk about, about going out there. So I think the promise that we need to hear in these never enough moments is that God's unmerited love for us was never dependent on us having done all that we could or all that we would. And so our first impulse in those moments is going to be to return to God's grace and to his love. Now, I'm I'm really hoping that what I said was not like shocking information to many of you. Uh, It's wonderful if it is. I'm happy to have a chance to share it. But I think this is more exhortation information, that we know this, but we maybe wouldn't think to turn to it in that moment um, that that we need it. And and that's the piece that I want to bring there. All right, third uh, story. Uh, I walked into the ICU once. This was in Kenya also. We don't have an ICU in Burundi. (laughs) I walked into the ICU, and there were several new patients, including some kids, and I looked up at the chart, and the chart said, mass suicide. And I thought, what in the world is that? And the story goes that um, I don't know what the circumstances, but there was a mom who, uh, so in Kenya, they, they often will take these um, insecticides uh, as, as a suicidal move, um, or some kind of organic phosphate or something similar. And so they'll take them. It doesn't kill everyone, but it, it does some of them. We see these cases a lot, but this case, the mom had taken it, and then she'd given it to her three sons in a row. Um, and the youngest of them had already died, and the second one was about to die, and the third one was not looking good, and I don't know if the mom gave the same dose to everyone or what, but mom was sitting there, and she looked the best out of all of them, and she can see plainly what's going on. And I think that's the worst thing I've ever seen to this day. Um... And I want to share that story, which is, to me, the epitome of darkness, and then say something to you, which is that in spite of that, my life in Africa has convinced me of the palpable, positive goodness of God in his creation. And I I want that to jar you and be like, what? Because that's how it feels, but it is nevertheless true. Another example, this is a better one. Uh, one day I was walking from maternity to, to the other ward, and there's kind of a little bend in the, like an outdoor uh, porch railing. And I walk out there, and I see this uh, physician assistant student from Kentucky, and he's only been here like a week. And he's standing on the porch looking up at the hills, and he's just crying, this, like, 23-year-old guy. And I'm like, oh, man. And so I kind of walk up to him. I'm like, hey, oh, hey. What's going on? He's like, oh, I just saw my first delivery. And I was like, (laughs) you know, like, I'm not, you can tell by nature, I'm not going to shy away from talking about hard things. But like his first delivery, really, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, and I, you know, I'm going to, but Rachel's first delivery was definitely very tragic. And and I was like, so, how'd it go? And he goes, "It it it was great. It's just beautiful, you know? 
And that's it. <laughs> he was like sobbing out there because of the beauty of this normal birth that he had just watched. And he's right. He's right. Uh, and my African patients have taught me this. You walk around the hospital, and there are tears, and there is sobbing, but there is laughter, and there is smiling, and it is not ingenuine. It is real. Uh, they are embracing, uh, in many ways, the goodness that God has brought them in the midst of a lot of tragedy. Uh, Frederick Buechner, always quotable, What's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. All right, so there's a philosophical term for the problem of evil, which is what we're talking about, right? It's called theodicy, and it kind of sums up as saying, given that evil is real, either God is not good or he's not powerful enough to, to take care of it or he's not even there. And I'm not going to enter into this conversation. I'm not qualified to, but there is a point that I would like to make, which is this one here. Well, if God is not there or he's not good, then where did all the goodness come from? Because that needs an explanation, too. Uh, and we need to be able to turn our eyes to that. We need to cultivate hope and gratitude and help each other, especially as healthcare providers. Your job, what's your job? It's to go to the sick one. And you're going to spend 80% of your time on the 20% who are doing poorly and 20% of your time on the 80% who are doing well. Uh, but you need to remember that there is goodness that is going all around you that you can be part of. Uh, the other piece of this, um, there's this term called eucatastrophe, which I would love it if all of you knew if you didn't know it already. This was a, a it's a literary term. It was co coined by, by Tolkien. He wrote Lord of the Rings. And my, my paraphrase of what it means is victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. So if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you can picture, you know, the end of the movie when it just feels like this is heroic and glorious, but it is, they are done. Like, they are defeated. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, good has triumphed, and there's this glorious ending. And it actually makes sense of the rest of the story. Like, it fits. It doesn't feel artificial. It actually works on it. And Tolkien made the claim in one of his essays, he said that the incarnation of Jesus was the eucatastrophe of history, and the resurrection was the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. In other words, this is what, this is what, the, this is what God does, that our God is a God who makes eucatastrophes. Um, and that's, that's hope. That's hope building right there. All right, so what do we do in the meantime? Um, this quote is from Stanley Hauerwas, who's an ethicist. He said, historically, Christians provided not a solution to the problem of evil, but a community of care that made the suffering possible to absorb. So I ask you this question. According to the Bible, who is the light of the world? Jesus. Jesus. And? Us. And us. Yeah. He says, I'm the light of the world. And he says, you are the light of the world. I think a lot about light. This was a picture taken from when we launched a Chinese lantern in, at Kibuya. That was a bad idea, uh, by the way. It caused all sorts of local turmoil. Uh, don't light Chinese lanterns in the middle of Africa. But this is, this is kind of without police permission. Um, this is kind of how I picture the world a lot of times, right, is this big, dark nightscape with a little pinprick of light that's shooting through here and there. Okay? But it may actually be more like this. It may be that the, the, the abnormalities, the little tiny specks of darkness, are there on top of this big, beautiful banner of the light of the goodness of God, which is there for us. And we are the ones that need help in learning how to see that. All right, so promise in regard to darkness and light, Jesus is making all things new. That's how I would sum it up. That's the promise that he gives us, um, the ultimate catastrophe. 
And that's an end that gives us hope for now. While we wait, what do we do? We are called to be a community of light that absorbs the suffering and makes it possible to endure. And then I think we, we need to give attention to how can we uh, cultivate um, habits and practices to build mindfulness and celebration and testimony to the victories that we have. So, for example, when I'm on rounds, one of the things that I like to do is when we get to someone, so who's this? This is the 18-year-old guy who's on day seven of antibiotics for his uh, bacterial meningitis. That's him? Yeah. He's the guy that was comatose in February Island. Yeah. Okay. He's good now? Yeah. Like he's walking, talking, he can do everything? Yeah. He's going home? Yeah. All right. I have a, I have a choice right now. I can say, let's go to the next one because we're busy. Or we can take 30 seconds and we can celebrate and say, this is amazing. Um, not only is it amazing what God has done, but it is amazing that he, that we got to be a part of it. Uh, he pulled us into it, and we got to be a part of, of the saving of this guy's life to such health by such simple gestures. How incredible is that? This is wonderful. Let's take a moment and, and pray and thank God with the family. But the point isn't necessarily just like evangelism. I mean, it can be really powerful in that sense. Uh, but the point is to testify to God and to give him the praise that he's worthy for that and to, to remind ourselves of the goodness that is there. So, by way of conclusion, um, another Beaconer quote, To be a saint is to work and weep for the broken and suffering of the world, but it is also to be strangely light of heart in the knowledge that there is something greater than the world that mends and renews. So we want to remember the promises of God in the face of insufficiency, that God's strength is made perfect in weakness, in the face of never enough, that God's love is never dependent on us having done enough, in the face of darkness, that Jesus is making all things new. And I'm going to stick in. I had an idea. I told Rachel this morning. I was like, while I was like halfway awake, I had like a thought, and I thought it was so great and brilliant. <laughs> but a lot of my thoughts when I'm halfway awake feel that way, right? And then I wake up, and I'm like, <laughs> but I'm going to, this one's not brilliant, but it is maybe kind of helpful. So I, I use the term, the emotional toll that these things take on us. And when we talk about a toll in that sense, it's like, you know, the circumstances are kind of extracting their pound of flesh. Like it's exacting something from you, right? But what is a toll? When do we pay tolls? Pay a toll to go over a bridge. Pay a toll to get from where we are to where, where it is that we are going, where it is that we want to be. Um, and I think that that actually is a pretty, a pretty good image. Uh, through working through these things and the difficulties that it's been, God is at work in me and in, in the people that are around me, and he's taking us from where we are to where we go. Does it cost? Yeah, it costs. It does cost. Is it a cost that's worth, worth paying? Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's part of how God is leading us. So uh, different uses of the word toll there. So there's my family. There's my email address and our blog for our team. And then here is a bunch of things you can read or listen to that are really good on these themes, in my opinion. And if you want to know more about my book, I think that QR code works. If you want to know more about our organization, Surge, they have a booth here um, and actually a representative here right now. Um, and also a QR code that you could scan in order to learn more. So thank you very much. It is, it is 1.42 by my watch, and the live stream is, how's it doing over there? Good enough. Uh, any questions that you guys have or comments that you want to make? Yes.
I think, you know, you probably have given this talk before, thought through a lot of things. But thank you. So many people go through these experiences and they don't share. Because that takes its toll, too, to relive and relive and redo. And I just appreciate that immensely. Thank you very much. Uh, I, uh, I met my wife at this conference in 2003, 18 years ago. Um, so, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're here and single, um, you never know. But uh, I will say to some extent, like, getting to, getting to Africa and, and working, uh, this, this talk is kind of, in the, in the book, are kind of the fruit of, like, what I, what I wish I could have heard, you know. And uh, obviously, so... I can tailor it to me. It's going to be different for other people, but I, I hope that it strikes somewhat of a chord like that. Other questions? Yes? Is there any other, I mean, you mentioned several scripture uh, meditation on that. Are there any other spiritual practices that you've found to be helpful in the face of those moments to remind you of these truths or, or anything else that you found to be helpful? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, I mentioned uh, Sabbath. I can mention Sabbath. I think that, um, I don't know, but I would guess that, like, historically, the worst Sabbath keepers in the world have been, like, medical missionaries, you know. Um, and it's hard, and I'm really thankful for our team has kind of embraced this as a community, um, which is really key, I think, if you're going to have, like, a Sabbath practice is to have people around you that are also doing it as well. It's really hard to go it alone. And um, one element of that, it's not just rest. Uh, it's, it's, it's giving God control. Um, and I think that's really necessary. And so a Sabbath practice of saying, I'm, I'm not just not going up to the hospital. I'm actually not going to do my email. I'm not going to work today. The work, the good work that God has given to me is, is to lay down now and to put into his hands. And I think that that has also been really key. Um, I could probably go on and on. I'll just mention one other one, which is, um, you know, lament is a really good topic uh, for people in this setting. And the first book on this flashing screen, the Michael Card book, A Sacred Sorrow, uh, is a really good biblical exploration of lament uh, and kind of what it is and the purposes that it has and such. And so I think that, you know, all those like uh, all those psalms, right, that you're like, eee, um, they can just be the, such exactly what your heart needs. Uh, to be able to cry out in, in different moments. And so lamenting is another one that I think is also very significant. Yeah, okay, so for students, tips for students. Um, yeah, your stresses are different, but they're big and they're real. Um, no one ever, I mean, just to harken back, no one ever talked to me about Sabbath as a student. Um, when I was studying for my step one boards in medical school, it was like this classmate of mine, who I didn't even know he was a Christian, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I'm like taking a Sabbath every week. And I was like, oh, you're a Christian. I didn't, didn't have any idea. Um, but I think like, I don't know, in, in my life growing up, like, studying and work that wasn't going to the office or something else like that. Like, as long as you went to church, that was kind of the end of the story. But I think that, again, this, this handing over and saying, you know, whether or not I get into uh, my, my OT school of choice or whether or not I can, you know, whatever, with my the goals that you have in your life as a student right now, to turn those over and say, I'm going to, I'm going to have this practice of setting aside to trust to the Lord. It's more than going to church. It is that. Uh, but it is in addition to that 
putting it in the Lord's hands and relinquishing control, I think, is really significant. The other thing for, for students, this is a little bit off the top of this, but it's what comes to mind, um, is, is community. So students that are interested in missions uh, need to, I, I think, find people uh, who share their passion and, and, and be together and, and support and build that for each other. Because medical missions, for example, is something that is very interesting, uh, but when the rubber hits the road, uh, 95% of the people are interested, but not actually interested. Um, like, they find it interesting, but they're not interested in terms of how it pertains to their own life. And if you have people around you, the first time I came to this conference, I had two other people coming for me with me from medical school, and one's a missionary in China, and one's in Angola now. And they, along with a few other people, like, kind of carried us through these years. When the normative thing is to let it go, it's so countercultural to have people around you who are like, no, I'm like you. You're not crazy. Like, we're, we're in this together. Like, this is actually legitimate, and we can do this, and, we, and, and we, we can care about these things. And having that community around us has been uh, the most significant factor for me in, in student years. Any other questions? All right, we'll close it out there. Thank you very much.